Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. On this episode, summertime's here, and when the sun is shining, it turns out people want beer. Now, if you're a home brewer, sometimes they even really want yours for some strange reason. Denny, what's your experience? Uh, yeah, the, the reason is that it's free. You know, that's that's what makes them win it. Uh, my, my experience is not so much related to summer and people wanting my beer as uh, me wanting my beer. You know, uh, our schedules are pretty crazy, and so I don't get to brew as often as I would like to. So uh, I oftentimes run out of my own beer, and that means I want it done quick so I can drink it. Yeah, and see, for me, I always have these festivals. Like right now, I'm in the middle of my busy festival season. And, well, it turns out I need beer to bring to those festivals to make people happy. What do you do when the demand for your beer hits? Well, on this episode, we're going to walk you through our tips on both how to make your brew day faster, which is Denny's specialty, and, importantly to me at least, how to get that beer produced from grain to glass as quickly as you can. But first, let's have a message from our sponsors, huh? Indeed. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember that if you have any interactions with the Brewers Publications, the AHA, or Atlantic Home Brewing Supply, make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing. Let's face it, when we talk about express brewing, when we talk about you know the amount of time it takes to brew a beer, there are really two different things that we mean. Now, one of those is, well, how much time am I spending actually brewing? You know, that brew day madness when you have to sit there and go, wait, no, please, I'm I'm busy manhandling a kettle right now. 
go away, dog. You're bothering me. And the other one is, well, just how much time it takes to get from that day to the time that that glass is filled with that wonderful, wonderful beer and your cynocyliophobia is done with. Your what? Your cynocyliophobia. It's the fear of an empty beer glass. <laughs> wow. Cool. <laughs> uh, so you taught something, uh, taught something to Denny today. Now, so uh, speaking of lessons, we're going to split this up into two parts here. I uh, talk about the speeding up your brew day and speeding up your actual production of your beer. Now, Denny is the master of speeding up your brew day. So, Dencenzo, why don't you uh, lead us through just how do you make that brew day shorter and faster? As much as I enjoy the brewing process, it seems like I've always got something else I need to be doing, too. So uh, when I brew, I want to take advantage of the enjoyment of the brewing, but I also want to get it done so I can move on. Because the sooner you get the beer in the fermenter, the sooner it can be done fermenting, right? So I like to kind of try and do things in advance. Uh, I always crush and weigh out my grain and hops the day before I brew. It just, you know, makes everything a lot faster on brew day. And believe me, there are no detriments to doing that. Uh, I uh, weigh out all my water salt additions and uh, finings in advance. I wrap them up in little pieces of foil and use a uh, Sharpie to write on them what they are so that they go in at the right time, assuming I remember to put them in at all. Uh, see, that, that's different than what I do. I, I'll, I'll weigh everything out and put them into you know clear plastic cups that I label and then just cover with something. And, and you can do that. My, my hops, I have a bunch of Ziploc bags marked, you know, first word, 60, 45, 30, 15, 5, 3, 2, 0, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm just worried that if I had funny little powdery chemicals in foil bindles, Yes. That might be misinterpreted for something else. Oh, but see, I don't have to worry about that because nobody is anywhere near me when I'm brewing. So <laughs> uh, I don't have to care about what they think. So uh, I also, uh, you know, measure all my water and fill the containers uh, in advance. You know, that means uh, I have my uh, my mash water in the kettle ready to go. I even will uh, go ahead and measure out my sparge water, just leave that sitting in a bucket so that uh, as soon as my kettle is empty of the mash water, I can just dump in the sparge water so it's ready to go. You want to get as much done in advance as possible. I also will kind of lay out the equipment that I'm going to need so it's right at hand so I don't have to go looking for it and wondering where it is when I'm brewing. All that kind of stuff gets me beer in the fermenter more quickly than if I had to mess around doing all that stuff on brew day. But the other thing that I do is I'm lazy on my cleaning. Normally, by the time I get done brewing, pretty much all my cleanup is done, except for maybe the kettle um, that, that I'm using to boil in. But everything else is cleaned up and put away. If I'm... Uh, in a hurry, though, I'll leave everything and clean it up the next day. You know, in a way, it takes a little bit more time because it extends your brew day. But on the other hand, you end up with two shorter brew days from doing that. Just don't let it go more than a day, especially if you haven't emptied your mash tun, or else you might end up inventing new forms of life. Oh, yeah. It, no, you you only make that mistake once, and then you're like, oh, God, help me. Yeah, that's right, man. It's like... Yeah, right. Uh, This thing will never be used again. And even though my nearest neighbor is half a mile away, they're still yelling at me. 
now, I mean, it seems to me a lot of what you're advocating here is sort of moving the work around. It's not so much getting rid of work or getting rid of the time it takes for work, but actually kind of moving it around so that you're, you know, you're not in the middle of trying to do it all in one solid block, right? So you get, you know, you get your prep work done the night before, you know, so, you know, maybe after everybody's gone to bed, you can toddle out to the brewery and go, I'm setting up for tomorrow. I'm setting up for tomorrow. And you take an hour to do that. Well, I do, I do it during the day because I'm the first one in bed around here. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I, I don't go to bed until two. <laughs> so yeah, right. I, I'm doing, I, I do a lot of things in the middle of the night. And then the next day you come in, you handle the solid block of brewing, you know, the things that have to be done all sort of in a block. And then you do anything that you can afterwards. And so therefore you can break it up across three sessions. It's just three much shorter sessions. Yeah. That's, that's it exactly. So do you do anything? to shorten up the actual, uh, the brew day process itself. I mean, there's a lot of popular talk nowadays about doing shorter mashes or doing shorter boils, any of that sort of stuff you played with. Yeah, I, I do that sometimes. Uh, 45 minute mash, 45 minute boil. Uh, I've uh, even gone as short as a 20 minute mash and a 20 minute boil and didn't see any detriment to doing that. So uh, even though I don't do those regularly, uh, I, I might in the future. Uh, I just need to experiment with it more before I can say for certain that a 20-minute mash and boil is pretty much always going to be okay, uh, especially with the mash. It's going to depend a lot on the particular grain that you're using, uh, especially domestic pale malt, stuff like that, have a lot of diastatic power so you can get away with a shorter mash. Uh, if you're going to go for a short boil, like a 20-minute boil, you need to remember to increase your bittering hops. I found that uh, an increase of about 50% uh, in the amount of bittering hops you use will generally cover you for a 20-minute boil to get the same amount of IBUs that you would with a longer boil. And then uh, other hop additions, later hop additions, just remain the same. Uh, they go by weight. Uh, alpha acid units don't really matter. Well, and it seems like you'd have to what, uh, accommodate for less boil off, so you get less concentration. So your your mash your mash runoff gravity and your final boil gravity are going to be closer than they would be in a full boil. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Uh, it, it really helps to know what your uh, normal boil off rate is. So if you know that you boil off a, a gallon in an hour, you know that you're going to boil off probably maybe a quart and a half in 20 minutes. And then it also feels like, I mean, normally in the past, I would have said something like, oh, well, yeah, this is great. You can do this with anything, but you really can't do this with anything that you want a lot, a lot of hop presence to or a lot of hop bite to. But it, it definitely seems like with the number of beers that are out there nowadays that are being done with, you know, virtually no kettle additions that, well, you know, it, and maybe that's not no, so necessary anymore. Your fruitier, your juicier IPAs, or even your really sort of hot bursted type IPAs totally be done with a 20 minute boil. Just go for it because they seem to be getting most of their business from the back end anyway. Yeah. And again, and you can, you can do bitter beers with a, with a 20 minute boil. When I, most of my experiments have involved uh, IPA and pale ale, which are, you know, relatively bitter beers. So, you know, for sure, you know, it, it's a great thing if you don't need to use bittering hops, but if you do want to use bittering hops to make a bitter beer, just increase the amount by about 50% and that'll get you in the ballpark. And have you ever done anything like overnight mashing? You know, you see some people talk about like leaving their, their mash tons filled overnight with like wrapped up. 
I think I think I've done an overnight mash twice, just as an experiment to assure myself that it could be done and there was nothing wrong with it. Um, and the uh, I've found no problems whatsoever doing it. You know, it works absolutely fine. Uh, you wrap up your mash tun to hold the temp, although it, in my cooler it doesn't really uh, really matter that much. It holds temp pretty well on its own. One other thing I'll mention that I just thought of is a lot of brewing systems these days, the, the grain father, the mash and boil, the zymatic, those kinds of things, have a delayed start feature where you can uh, get them to start up the day before so that when you start brewing the next day, your water is already up to temperature. My grandfather, for instance, it's a 120-volt uh, unit thing that was meant to uh, actually run on 240. So it does take a while to heat up water. So I'll just set it to start heating up water, like, say, at 6 o'clock in the morning, so by the time I get out there to start brewing at 8.30 or 9, the water is already heated up and ready to go. And I'll do something like that with, say, an electric heat stick. I have a few of those uh, hanging around, and, you know, just put those on timers, right? You know, like the old uh, lamp timers or, uh, well, something more solid than a, uh, a lamp timer because of the amount of energy they draw. Well, yeah, you want to you want to make sure that uh, you get a timer that can handle the wattage of your heat stick, or else you're going to wake up to the morning to a uh, melted and smoking timer. And so I'll take those uh, and I'll actually throw a heat stick like in the HLT ahead of time and set it so that it starts heating in the morning. And I walk out and ta-da! I've got 15 gallons of hot water ready to go and. And I can get to mashing, and then when I need more HLT water, well, I have burners that are big enough to get it up to heat while I'm mashing. Any other tips that you can think of to speed up the brew day? I mean, a lot of it really just seems to come down to smart prep and splitting up the parts that don't have to all be in a block. Yeah, I think that, I think that's probably it. Well, there's also things that you can do, like, for instance, deciding uh, to go no-chill. So if you can, if you have the equipment to do no chill and just be able to walk away, you can even sp split apart the end of your boil to the uh, to your fermentation time. You could do a kettle sour though that it could also speed up and split your time, right? Because there you can split the mash and the boil away from each other as well. Now, of course, you're also going to have to deal with the fact that you're going to have a sour beer, right? You know, and I've never done a no boil beer, although I've had several that uh, other people have done, and. <laughs> As, as counterintuitive as it seems, it actually seems to be a very great uh, way to do it. And then, of course, if push comes to shove and you have absolutely no time to brew a, a full batch of beer, uh, all grain, don't forget, you can always do extract. There's nothing wrong with doing an extract batch. Those are actually some really tasty beers some, uh, that you can make. And then the ultimate cheater one, the one that I always used to do when it was like when it was the middle of the night and I couldn't sleep, you know, because I used to have insomnia and then I just stopped sleeping. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would just go make a batch of mead. <laughs> You're crazy. Well, I mean, look, you, you, what I discovered was that waking up in the middle of the night. So say it's, you know, two o'clock and you can't get to sleep. I would just walk out to my kitchen. I would heat up a little bit of water. I would dissolve the honey. And then I would make sure that the uh, fermenters were ready to go. They were clean. They were sanitized. I would pour that into a mass of water that I had waiting. I swirl it together, make sure that everything was dissolved, put in the nutrient, put in the yeast. You know, wham, bam, got something going. It would take me like 30 to 45 minutes. And it was just enough physical activity to actually kind of make me tired. Uh, you know what? Uh, you can do that just by uh, smoking a joint and watching an infomercial. Yeah, remember drug testing. <laughs> yeah, hippie. But it'll put you right to sleep. This is true. All right. 
So anything else? No, I think, I think that's pretty good, man. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about what happens after you get that beer brewed. Now, this is one I've, I've written about this before and, here, here's the thing. A lot of us homebrewers, you know, when we started, we got all that advice about, you know, stick your beer into primary, leave your beer in primary for a week, then transfer your beer over to the secondary and let it stay there for another week or two until clear and then bottle and wait 10 days and then you'll have beer. And that's what we've all done religiously. And then, of course, a lot of us, we switched over to, okay, well, you know, I'm not bottling anymore, so I'm going to put it in the keg and that allows me to shorten up my time. Uh, or, you know, then we all decided, you know, secondary, secondary is a terrible idea. Don't do that. Just leave the beer there for, you know, two to three weeks until it's done fermenting. You're fine. So there's a little more time saved there. But here's the thing. As homebrewers, we still always seem to have this rule of like, Oh, just be patient. Give it more time. That's what you need. The time doesn't hurt. But you go and you look at our professional brethren, you know, the people who are actually trying to turn beer into money, and you have to realize that they're not holding on to the beer in that same way. You know, there's a number of beers that you'll find at your local brewery that, I mean, those are turned around in 10 days from Mashton to the taps in 10 days. And there's absolutely, in my mind, no reason that we can't do the same. Taking a lesson from our commercial brethren, Here's what here's what I think you need to do. First things first is you have to decide, okay, what actually will make a beer speedy? And to my mind, that means you're going for lower gravity, not necessarily a session beer, but a lower gravity beer. So t- say 1055 or below. You're going for big flavors, uh, can uh, you know, kind of those specialty malts or a lot of hops, which are very popular with Americans. Uh, will overpower any of that kind of green beer uh, syndrome. It's a good thing, you know, I, I think. And yes, I know that times that may seem like it's at odds with the idea of lower, lower beer, but look at an American pale ale. It has a lot of hops and doesn't taste very green. Uh, clarity. When I first started brewing, clarity was everything. And I think we all know where clarity went in the past couple of years. But if you're concerned about clarity, you can always use uh, Whirlflock. You can use Brutan B to help out. You can filter and you can even do finings. There are ways to do finings in a super quick fashion. Ales. I know there are people who are talking about doing speedy lagers, but speedy lagers in 10 days is really pushing it. And I haven't had great success with trying to do it. So I, I say ales. You know, this is no time for loggers, Dr. Jones. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I've i had pretty good luck getting a logger done in 11 or 12 days. Well, that's 11, 12 days, not 10 days. <laughs> that, that's very true. For a logger, I'll give it two extra days. Right. And, of course, uh, I think we'll all agree that forced carbonation is key here. There's just not enough time for the yeast to do their thing in that period of time. Yeah, right. I was going to mention that too, that, uh, there is, there is no way you can be speedy if you're, uh, bottling. You can be speedier than you might be otherwise, but that's about as close as you can get. Yeah. And of course, you remember, you know, Denny and I are both, uh, you know, just dedicated keggers here, but you can always, you know, depending upon your party needs, you can always take that beer straight into, say, a soda bottle and carbonate it with a, a carbonator cap. That works too. It's easy. And, and here, and here's the key. It gives you a good excuse to go buy the CO2 tank and the CO2 regulator and get ready and set for kegging when you actually have a little more fundage. You'll have half the equipment in advance, so it'll be a little bit less painful than shelling out all the money at once. Yeah, so you can you can look at your accountant and go, but see, I already spent half it. Now, what sort of beers are we talking about here for uh, style-wise? Uh, these are some of the ones that I've had great success with. Uh, lower gravity ales, your session ales. You, you guys know that we are all about session ales here. So your milds, your bitters, your pale ales, the session IPA, even uh, New England IPA uh, these days is actually in that same boat. 
I also think that some darker ales like Irish Dry Stout or Porter with those big roast notes will actually, you know, uh, hit the mark early. And in fact, this whole process that that I do was actually originally inspired by my good friend, uh, Mary Beth Rains, who brought a Irish Dry Stout to a club meeting once that was exactly four days old, and it tasted phenomenal. So yeah, that really opened up my eyes to make me go, oh, you can do that. Other styles, uh, Hefeweizen. Uh, Hefeweizen was one of the best ones I've ever had. It was from another friend of mine in the club, uh, Steve Cook, his Ballaholic Hef. And he entered it into a, a competition so that the time of judging, it was 12 days old. And it ended up winning the best of show. I, it was amazing. It was the freshest Hefeweizen that you ever had with all those beautiful, wonderful, creamy wheat flavors to it, along with all the yeast characters. 12 days, not too bad. No, not at all. I'm also a big fan of the lower gravity ales that you can find out of Belgium. So things like Potter's beer, uh, my Saison Ordinaire, or, you know, that, that one turns around so quick that I can always have it on tap, even if I forget. Uh, any other styles that you can think of there, Denny? Well, you know, again, there are, you can actually get a lager done that quick. I have a, there's a, there's a guy in the, our club who, uh, once won best of show in a very large competition with a Pilsner that was 12 days old and had never been lagered. Well, I think we're discovering that you can uh, you can cheat a lot more on lagers than everybody's always thought you could. Yeah, well, you know, and, and all kinds of things. I mean, you, you're talking about lower gravity ales, but I, uh, I kegged a uh, 1061 IPA yesterday that uh, had been in the fermenter for only about a week, uh, you know, and so... It, uh, there's a lot of it depends in here that went on a uh, full yeast cake from uh, from my uh, American mild. So there was a lot of healthy yeast that it went on to and it totally fermented out in four or five days. I crashed it at 33 for two or three days and kegged it yesterday about a week after I brewed it. Aha. Uh-huh. See, I don't buy your excuse that you don't have enough time to make beer. You're good at this. <laughs> that's what, that's why I was in a hurry to get a keg, man. <laughs> now let's talk yeast choices. Uh, Cause I think yeast is absolutely critical to be able to pull this off. Uh, and you know, some strains are absolutely terrible to do this. Like for instance, in the British world, uh, I despise ringwood and, and most of the really bad diastole producers, but a lot of British strains really do, uh, shine here very well because they've kind of become acclimatized to the idea of turning beer around quickly. We have things like uh, the West Yorkshire and Essex from White Labs, Thames Valley, or the White Labs British Ale. The West Yorkshire is a great yeast, man. I mean, that that stuff can really, really drop clear pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and you think about it, historically speaking, you know, with cask ales, I mean, this is exactly what they were designed to do. So, yeah, they're beautiful. Just don't get one of the ones that throws a lot of diastole. On the American side, I've actually had really great luck with the San Diego Super Yeast from uh, from White Labs. I, I don't tend to have as much luck with White Labs 01 or Y Yeast 1056 or the US 05 complex, you know, the Chico setup, uh, because I don't think they tend to flocculate as well. Denny, you got any other choices there in the American side? Well, um, you know, uh, I've had Other again really favorite. good luck. Yeah, I was gonna say, man, <laughs> I've had I've had good luck with that being able to plow through pretty quickly. Uh, and, and again, it depends on a big healthy pitch, uh, you know. But if you do that, then fourteen fifty will plow through the beer pretty quickly, and with a couple days of cold crashing, it'll clear up pretty well. So that you know, in terms of American yeast, that's that's another one that I 
kind of use for when I'm doing quick brewing. Yeah, and then on the Belgian side, I like the White Labs Vastone, the YU Star Dins. As much as I poo-poo the French Saison strains in terms of uh, uh, Saison characteristics, they are reliable Belgian-y fermenters. I know that you like the Ardennes strain. I really do, too, for flavor, and it does ferment pretty quickly for me, but I have a hard time getting that one to clear up as quickly as some of the other ones. Well, here's the trick. It's Belgian. It's kind of hazy naturally. <laughs> so, so basically what you do is you get it so it's kind of clear and go, that's the way it's supposed to be. Exactly. I do have pretty good luck with uh, 3787, the West Mall yeast, uh, fermenting quickly and clearing pretty well. See, and in my experience, 3787 to me always needs extra time to kind of mellow. This is why brewing is experiential. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe maybe these yeasts work different up uh, north than they do down there where you are. It's it, it's a geographic thing. It might be temperature thing. And then also on Hefeweiss, that Balaholic uh, Hefe that I told you that was 12 days old when it won, uh, that was done with uh, White Labs uh, 3080, which is the Hefeweiss in four. And that one seems to do really well in terms of speedy uh, brewing days. I've had pretty good luck with Saflogger 3470 uh, plowing through pretty quickly and clearing reasonably well pretty quickly. And the great thing about that is you can use it for either ales or lagers. It's kind of an all-purpose yeast, despite the fact that it's sold as a lager yeast. We've covered what makes a beer speedy. We've covered what beer styles can be made speedy, and we've even covered what yeast we think that you need to use in order to be speedy. But how do you be speedy? Isn't that the question? Ask Speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> no, my personal choice is to ask the Flash. Oh, so yeah. in this case, let's talk about how we actually go and make a beer in a Flash. We already covered how to speed up your brew day, but here's my process that I use when I need to turn around a beer in a hurry. This can take as little as five days, and it can take as many as like 10, depending upon both the conditions that you see from the beer as you're fermenting and, well, you know, how much time you have. First day is obviously your brew day, and that's what we think of as your pitching day. Now, you guys have heard me before on the show talk about the way I like to cool my beer. I like to cool my wort down completely to below my target fermentation temperature and then pitch. So that means if I have to use a lot of ice to drive my immersion chiller to get everything down nice and cold, that's exactly what I do. And the reason why I do this is remember that your a lot of your yeast characters are going to come up when you're actually in that early phase of, you know, of fermentation. So the cooler you can keep the beer during that period of time, the less likely you are to have oddball off flavors. And trust me, we're already pushing things, so we don't want to put ourselves behind the eight ball in any way. I have a, I have a dirty secret. Okay. I actually, uh, if I want to get a beer done faster, I pitch two or three degrees warmer than I normally would. Yeah. See, I don't like that. Well, I mean, you know, we're still, we're talking 65 or 66 instead of 63. So it's not like uh, really, really getting up there. And I, w I can't swear that it makes a difference, but that's what I do. The big key out of both both of our statements is don't go pitching this thing at 76 or 70. No, 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 no. Don't do that. But, I mean, you see a lot of people's advice out there to do that because, hey, it starts the beer faster. Uh, I think you get terrible beer character out of that, and I think we have an experiment to do for that. Yeah, it, it, gets, it gets the beer going faster at the expense of beer quality. Now, of course, in terms of yeast, you know, yeast cakes win the day, I think. 
Yeah, although a lot of times if I'm doing these session nails, I'm trying to generate a yeast cake to use for something else. That's right. But yeast cakes do win, or at the very least, a big healthy starter. I still do things the old-fashioned way where I do a starter that I start a couple days before, uh, manually start, and then decant after crashing. And Denny, I think you – have you switched completely doing your shaken not stirred starters? Yeah, I haven't had my stir plate out for a couple years now. So, And the shaken not stirred starter, obviously you get a, a small amount of wort into a jar, you seal it up. And you shake it like a Polaroid picture until it's nice and foamy, uh, where it's completely filled the vessel, and then pitch into that. The idea being that you get more access to oxygen, and you get more, you know, sort of surface area for the yeast to hit into. Right, and you pitch it while it's uh, actively fermenting, and it takes off right away. So, two different approaches. Both work well, but the real key is lots of good yeast in good health into a nice cool wort. Yep. So that's day one. Day two and three are fermentation. Now that's where fermentation's running. Guess what? You pretty much don't have anything to do here, except for what I'll do is the exact same thing you'll hear me talk about with my saisons. I'll keep the temperature down for a little bit, but because I'm trying to take these into an express mode, I don't do the full three days at a cool temperature. I'll actually let it start coming up at you know, usually around the end of day two, uh, if you wanted to be really precise about it, you'd go and you look at your, you know, say where your gravities are and wait until you're at least halfway down. I let it ride up, but and still, but like I said, even though I, I let it ride up, I wait until the Krausen kicks off. And I also, I don't let it ride up like into that 76 area that a lot of people like to do. So don't do that. Yeah. I, you know, I wait a little bit longer. I, I give it a good three days. Maybe I'm just paranoid, but uh, then I crank up the temp in my fermentation freezer to probably 68 to 70 and let it go there. So about day four or five, when the croissant starts to fall, that's when I actually start to pay attention. And this is actually when I will, I will actually crash my beer while it's still in the primary. So if I'm in one of my fermentation fridges or my fermentation freezer, I will actually see that croissant start to go down. And instead of doing what everybody always recommends, which is, you know, give it a nice gentle glide down, you know, slowly lower your temperatures so that you're not shocking the yeast. Now, in this particular case, the yeast are made to be shocked. I will drop that thing down to 32, 35 so that I can force that yeast to start getting out of the beer. And I know this is, this to me is the one tricky bit about what I do in my process because, of course, what we're worried about is if you crash the yeast too early, if you're trying to remove it from suspension too early, it's going to miss its chance to do all the cleanup of the acetaldehyde and the diacetyl. So, you know, this takes a little bit of practice. This takes knowing your yeast strains, but this is what I do. I start that crash day four or five to really start to clear the beer. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll do that too. Uh, usually fermentation is pretty much done by then, and if fermentation is done, there's no reason you can't crash it. Yeah, exactly. But you know, again, pay attention. Learn to learn to listen to your yeast. It's gonna it's gonna tell you the story. So watch out. The beer will tell you what it wants to do. Yep. But in this particular case, sometimes we do have to force things. Now, so day five, day six, uh, I will actually, this is actually, after the crash has started, I've gotten a lot of settling down. You'd be amazed at how much settling happens in 24 hours. Oh, yeah. Day five or six, I will go and I will transfer the beer at the end of the day into a keg. Um, and of course, now I, I ferment in kegs. So for me, that's really doing a keg to keg transfer, which is awesome. Uh, and when I do that, I'll actually hook up the jumper hose and blow off whatever sediments down at the bottom of my fermentation keg or your fermenter in this case. And then I'll, I'll do the transfer just so I'm not picking up a lot of sediment. And now since the beer is already cold because you already did the, the overnight chill down, guess what? You can carbonate. 
I do my little shake and bake where I set the pressure on my regulator to about one or two PSI above what the desired slow carbonation setting is, right? You know, like if you just hooked up to the keg for a week and I'll just gently rock the keg back and forth for about 15 minutes, listening for the bubbles and feeling them uh, boil through the, the keg. Do that. And hey, guess what? I've got beer. I do let it settle on the fridge overnight and serve the next day, though. So, you know, a lot of people when they're uh, trying to force carbonate quickly recommend hooking the uh, gas up to the outpost so that it bubbles up through the beer. I've never found that to make any difference whatsoever. How about you? No, in terms of final uh, final performance, no. I, but I do, I mean, it sounds cooler in the keg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, but it doesn't go any faster. No, I will say, actually, I think the most important part that people need to do is you actually have to have some, some headspace in your keg. I tried doing the shake and bake before with, you know, a, a really full keg. And of course, it doesn't work because there's no headspace for it to, to transfer across. In this case, yeah, make sure that you leave a little headspace. Don't do the, the slam where it's like, I set my keg to 35 PSI and I put it on for five minutes and rocked it back and forth. Uh, unless you have a better sense of the physics of the universe and the metaphysics of the world than I do, I've never gotten that to work to the point where my beer hasn't been like a giant foamy mess. So I prefer my way. It takes a little bit more time. I always know that I'm getting the right results with it. You need to get that CO2 to actually dissolve into the beer. You know, that's going to take a certain amount of time. I, I mean, I've done the crank it up to 35 and shake it until you can't hear any more gas going back in and then let it sit overnight, reduce the pressure. And it, it just has not worked all that well for me because there just hasn't been enough time for the CO2 to get into the liquid. I mean, that may be what's going on, uh, but for me, it's always just been, the beer has always been a giant foamy mess and it's just, it's no good. I, so I like my way. It takes, it takes three times as long to do the actual carbonation step, but we're talking 15 minutes, not 15 days. <laughs> yeah, right. In fact, sometimes before festival, you'll see me, uh, uh, you'd see me in the garage, you know, just basically standing there for an hour or two, just rocking gently kegs back and forth to get everything ready to go. Turns out it gives you really good forearm strength. <laughs> All right. If you have more time, let's say you have 10 days, uh, you know, 10 days is a perfectly reasonable non-expressed, you know, uh, brewing process. This is exactly what your pro uh, professionals are doing. So there, I just spread the time out a little bit more, give a little bit more love, maybe an extra day in fermentation, some extra time doing your crash. This is where actually you could, if you have that time, you could also pull in your gelatin and you could pull in, you know, I also like to use super clear, you know, both of those, you know, basically add a day to the process, but get you some additional clarity, I think. And yeah, if you have that time, boom, there you are. This is how you can go, grain to glass in five or so days. I do it when I, uh, when I need to, I don't do it when I don't have to mostly not because I don't think it produces great beer, but mostly because I'm lazy. <laughs> yeah, that's true, man. It, it does take uh, you actually paying attention and monitoring things as opposed to uh, my usual method, which is just try and forget about it for as long as possible. Well, now forgetting about things for as long as possible. Speaking of everybody who hears about this method, everybody who, uh, you know, a lot of old time homebrewers that, that we talk to about this, they, they get cranky about things and they're like, but but you have to let the beer age. Yeah, right. Um, there's this there's this recurring myth that the yeast will clean up for the beer post fermentation, and uh, I actually brought this up with John Palmer, and uh, he sent me a letter about it, and I'd uh, 
I'd like to read you a couple paragraphs now of some Palmer wisdom. A hundred to a hundred and fifty years ago, fermentation was open, followed by maturation in a wooden cask. The beer was prone to contamination. This could be mitigated by heavy hopping and long, warm maturation to wait for the bitterness to die down, or by long, cold maturation, or lagering, to use temperature to keep the contamination down. Yeast have three phases in their life cycle, adaptation, high growth, and stationary. They do not have a maturation phase where they clean up byproducts. Adaptation phase is where they take in oxygen and build sterols and other lipids, assess the sugar composition, and build enzymes. Once those activities are done, they start the high growth phase, eating and reproducing. The number of cell divisions is limited by their lipid reserves that they made during adaptation. These reserves are shared with each daughter cell. When those lipid reserves are exhausted, the cell stops reproducing. In addition, when those reserves are exhausted, the cell is old and cannot eat or excrete waste efficiently across its cell membrane. A yeast cell typically can reproduce about four times during a typical fermentation. After that, it's old and tired and tends to enter stationary phase. Sounds like me where it shuts down most of its metabolism and flocculates, waiting for the next batch of aerated wort. Stationary phase is essentially an inactivity phase resting on the bottom. Like I said, no conditioning phase as far as the yeast are concerned. Byproducts can be consumed at any point during the high growth phase, but they are a lower energy source than sugar, so guess what? Byproducts are not a biological priority. The brewer, therefore, this is the key here, the brewer, therefore, needs to plan his pitching rate and fermentation conditions such that the yeast run out of fermentable wort sugar before their lipid reserves are exhausted and they go into stationary phase. Now you have a majority of vigorous yeast that have only undergone two reproductions, for example. The sugar is gone and they are still hungry, so they turn to acetaldehyde and diacetyl as alternate energy sources and maturate the beer. Basically, what all of that says is that the yeast is not able to clean up the beer after they're done fermenting. They actually do the cleanup of the byproducts as the beer ferments. So there goes that age-old homebrew reason of leaving the beer in the fermenter for weeks after fermentation is done to clean it up. Yeah. So what we have then is basically you got growth, you got fermentation, and you got sleep. That's right. And really what you're trying to do is you're trying to make sure that while the, the before the yeast goes to sleep, they run out of just enough food that they turn around and they go... Fine, I'll eat the kale. <laughs> yeah, but again, remember, once that once the yeast are out of food, they're not going to be cleaning up any of those byproducts at all. There you go. So extended aging may not be doing what you're thinking of doing, at least if, in terms of what you think in terms of yeast doing the cleaning. Right. Anything else that you think that we should talk about in terms of speedy brewing, both in the day of and the fermentation of, or do you think we got it? Boy, I think that we covered a whole bunch of good stuff there, actually. So don't forget, though, the people, get out there, get brewing, and just because you have a week doesn't mean you can't turn around and make a great ale for your next need. That's right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of express brewing, both how to speed up your brew day, and trust me, there's a lot more that we can talk about there, and how to speed up your fermentation and really getting that grain turned into delicious, delicious beer that Friar Tuck would be proud of in just, you know, just a few short days. So what did you learn today, Denny? 
I learned that I guess I guess I learned that if you want to make a beer fast, it's kind of like a, a symbiotic process where each and every uh, part of it affects another part. So you got to make sure that you're ready to pull it all off and that you know where you're going and what you're going to do when. It's kind of like when you stir fry, right? You got to have everything ready because it all goes fast. Get your get your mise en place set. That's, that's right, man. The the fermentation is going to happen fast, so you need to be ready for what's going to happen and what your next step is and remember no matter what as we always say on the show a healthy viable happy yeast will make you so forgivable for so many sentences yep i think that's the key now listeners what about you what's the fastest you've ever turned a brew day or a beer around you know what do you see working and are there tips that we missed have you done this you know what are your stories around the idea of fast brewing either in brew day terms or in fermentation terms so now remember that if you have show ideas styles brewers techniques ingredients etc or hey a response to this episode you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com you can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com you can find us on twitter on instagram on reddit on facebook on just about every homebrewing form known to mankind and microbes. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year, and we're coming up to a rapid close on it, is... It is Habitat for Humanity, a wonderful, wonderful organization helping house people, helping them house themselves. Throw us a few bucks and we'll throw it to them. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. The brew is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.